Greetings in Jesus' name. I appreciate what has been shared so far this morning and trust that we can, if we go get in the Word of God, be be uh, better prepared to serve the God that we heard about in children's lesson. I'll be uh, going on in the uh, my study of First Peter, and you can turn there. I'll, I'll eventually ask you to stand when we read it, but you can turn there a while. First Peter chapter one. The title this morning is Faith and the Prophets, because I was looking for a title here, and uh, the message is actually divided sort of in two different parts because of the context here. Because we'll be reading it, uh, we'll be looking in verse from verse uh, chapter one and verses eight to uh, a little bit into thirteen. There, that's our text this morning. And it has sort of two different divisions in there. So uh, the first part is more about faith, and the second part is about the prophets. So that's the title I came up with, Faith and the Prophets. So if you would, why don't you, if you can, anyhow, let's stand and let's read. I'll read, well, I guess we'll start at verse 8. We could go the whole way back to verse 3, but we'll, uh, we'll read the text that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, we'll talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you? Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. When it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which had preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, be sober and hope. To the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray while we stay standing here. Lord, thank you, Lord, for these words, these words that were given to us from you. Help us, Lord, now as we um, seek to understand your heart and your purpose and your will for us out of these words this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for the revelation you have given. 
And I pray, Lord, that through the inspiration of your spirit, you would uh, breathe on your word this morning and make it relevant and applicable to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Whom having not seen, ye love, though now ye see him not, yet believing. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what we read this morning. And I'd like to ask you the question, do you love God? I'd like to ask you then, well, why do you love God if you do? You know the Bible answer, don't you? What's the answer? Why do you love God? Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. <laughs> that is actually true. And um, you know, just think of an image of a young man who's pursuing a single young woman. And she is not really necessarily interested. She is single. She's been single all her life. Singleness is all she knows. Uh, she's not sure she wants to lose her independence. And is maybe a little fearful of what will happen if she gives up her independence and becomes underneath someone else. And so this, this young man may pursue a young woman, but face resistance for various reasons. But he pursues her, and he communicates to her the best that he can with the resistance coming. He communicates to her the best that she, he can, that she is actually in a not a good place in that place where she's at, and she he tried to communicate that he has a lot to offer her. He has security. He has provisions. And he has all those things. And so he pursues her and doesn't take her rejections personally. And he's a man of character and principle. And at some point, at some point, she realizes and she relents. She is convinced at some point her resistance breaks down and she responds and immediately the relationship changes. Immediately, when she, when she finally, the resolve drops, the relationship changes immediately. And immediately there's, the resistance is gone, the, um, the relationship changes instead of ignoring him or dismissing him or resisting him, she opens up to him. And then at that point, plans for a wedding begin. They're not married. This only, this only opens up plans for a wedding, but their relationship continues. And as in this period of engagement, as she interacts with him and she experiences his character and observes his, his um, 
character. She recognizes that he did not have to pursue her. He didn't have to. He could have lived very well without her. And it cost him a lot to win her. He gave up a whole lot of things to win her. But he pursued her and he blessed her because he loved her and wanted her. And when she realizes that, then she responds in kind, in love. And when we read that this morning about the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom having not seen ye love. If you love the Lord Jesus this morning, it's because you have experienced that. He did not need you or me. He did not need us, but he pursued us. And so, having not seen, ye love. Romans 5, 8, God commended or he showed or he demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Christians are to be a people of love because they have a God of love. The Muslims, not all of them, but many of them are men or people of war because they have a God of war. We have a God of love. Now, God is, we have also have a God of truth. We also have a God of justice. We also have, God has many characteristics. But God is primarily love, which is, yeah, caring and wanting, he cares about us and wants the best for us. And we are to respond in kind towards others. So the first point there is, ye love him. Uh, second one here is, whom ye have not seen. <laughs> Twice Peter mentions here, well, I'll just read it. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing. Twice Peter mentions that you have not seen him. Now, Peter had seen the Lord Jesus, and so did all the other disciples. He had walked with him for several years, but the uh, the audience that Peter is writing to, the people that Peter is writing to had not ever seen the Lord Jesus. And the people he's writing to now, what I'm talking to now, we've never seen the Lord Jesus. And so... Is it foolish to ask someone to believe in something they haven't seen? Is that a blind faith? I see Eldon's not here this morning, but I've seen everyone else is here. Is he? I was thinking of him when I was thinking of this. Why should I believe something that's written down in an old book? So, we believe in someone we haven't seen. Is that a wise thing to do? Is it wisdom? Well, let's go back. 
the disciples, let's go back to the disciples. Uh, Peter had seen the Lord Jesus. And uh, let's turn, actually, turn to uh, John 20. And let's look at uh, one instance where Jesus, where the disciples did not believe and where Jesus actually gives a blessing to those who don't see. Verse 24 of John chapter 20. Uh, Jesus had appeared to all the disciples, but in verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see his hands in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So, Thomas makes a good scientist. Show me the facts. I will believe what is credible. I will believe what I can see. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, and then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he unto to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Thomas became a believer. He had said, I must physically touch this dead man. This man is dead. I must physically touch this dead man and touch his injury so I know it's him before I'll believe. And the Lord grants his request. Now, I, I'm thinking of, we, we say we, we need to have faith when we pray, right? Faith is one of the prerequisites for prayer. Here there was a, a request answered that was completely faithless. He was a complete unbeliever, and the Lord answered his prayer or his request. It wasn't really a prayer. It was a request. It was actually a, uh, a statement, and the Lord responded to it. But all the disciples were unbelievers at the beginning. Uh, they didn't believe the testimony of the women that came and said the tomb is empty and they saw the angels. They actually didn't really believe what Jesus had told them when he was still alive. And it only settled down on them when they finally saw the Lord Jesus. And um, when Jesus appeared to them, in, in essence, they were doubters. I think someone had a message that, that here recently that the others were doubters just as much as Thomas was. Thomas gets a bad rap for being a doubter, but they were all. But and here is what Jesus said. After Thomas saw, after his confession, and after he became a true believer, Jesus makes this astounding statement. Thomas because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. 
And so Jesus is saying to Peter's audience and to us today, if you believe me, even though you obviously did not see me, you are blessed of God. I bless those people who have in faith in me, even though they haven't seen me. But here, here we can have a dilemma. Here we have a problem. Is faith just believing something you can't see? Is faith, are Christians blindly supposed to believe things they can't see and can't prove? Does God bless people who are gullible? Who are trusting whatever someone tells them? What is faith anyway? Truth is actually a bedrock concept of the Christian faith. Paul tells us that God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what was the truth that was laid out to Thomas? That Jesus really did rise from the dead. Did he really have evidence? Yeah, he did. He did have evidence. And he did believe. Well, what for evidence did Thomas have before Jesus appeared to him? Well, he had the testimony of others. He had the teachings of Jesus that is going to happen. He had, um, there was actually quite a bit of evidence given. Like I said, he had been told it by Jesus. Others had told him the grave was empty. He was not being asked to believe in something blindly. And yet he wouldn't believe it. He was not asked to believe a story about some purple spaghetti monster in the sky. Someone tells you, I saw a purple spaghetti monster in the sky. And you're supposed to believe it. Well, where's the evidence? There isn't any, but I just told you that. No, there was quite a bit of evidence here. A little boy in Sunday school was asked to define faith. He responded with, believing what you know isn't true. Some people think that if it's absolutely no evidence for something, but if we believe it anyway, that is commendable faith. And that is not faith. Faith is having confidence in something that you have evidence for. There is lots of evidence for God. There's lots of evidence that the Bible is inspired by God, such as its unity and its prophecy and its history. There's a lot of evidence. We have a lot of evidence that Jesus was crucified, and there is lots of evidence that he rose again from the grave. We do not have a blind faith. Faith in God is not a blind leap without any evidence or even worse, contrary to the evidence. Faith is actually trust. 
the Christian trusts in this God that he has evidence for. Let me try to just flesh it out a little bit more here. The scientific atheist has faith in science. If an atheist uses the scientific method to discover a medicine and then takes that medicine, he is exercising faith. He is trusting his data and he trusts the medicine will cure him and not poison him. Some people may take the medicine with no thought whatsoever how it was developed or as to who prepared it. Others may only take the medicine only after thoroughly investigating every aspect of the research. So one person may take it with great confidence, another person may take it tentatively. But in the final analysis, anyone who takes the medicine is exercising faith in that medicine. He believes it will do that to him. And ultimately, it is not the strength of the faith that determines if the medicine will work, but the, ethic, the, the, efficacy of the efficacy of the medicine. Great faith in bad medicine will not cure a person. It's the object of faith, not the strength of the faith, that makes the difference. The object of the faith in this case would be the medicine. So you have a bad medicine, you have a good medicine. Well, you, whether you have a strong faith in a bad medicine or you have a weak faith in a good medicine, it's the object that makes all the difference. <clears throat> so, some people... So an atheist, let's say it this way. Trying to think if this fits in there very well or not. Some people simply trust God because they have been taught to trust God. They have seen God work in other people's lives. They've grown up in a Christian home. And they have come to a place where their trust comes in God almost almost as they grow up. Others may only come to the faith after a thorough examination of God, a thorough examination of the evidence for God. So whether the decision to trust God is intuitive or is deliberate, it makes no difference because it's the object of your faith of either one that is valid. The atheist, likewise, may come to his atheism by intuition or by careful deliberation. In the end, he has faith that God does not exist because he trusts in either his instincts or his investigation, and he commits himself to live in a way that is consistent with his beliefs. So I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, Therefore, I'm going to live in that reality. Contrary to the claims of the new atheists, everyone has some kind of faith. Everyone trusts something. 
It's impossible to live without trusting in something, even if it is only the reliability of our five senses, and it's the object of the faith that makes all the difference. The definition of faith, the real root of faith, is choosing to trust. In this case, it's trusting the Lord. Um, trusting the Lord Jesus and everything that the Lord Jesus has claimed to be. The Lord Jesus claimed to have created the world. Well, some people say a big bang created it. Is there evidence for creation? There's a lot of evidence for creation, isn't there? Jesus says that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Is there evidence for that? Is there evidence that the Bible is inspired by God? What do you think? <laughs> what way? Well, there's lots of evidence, but one of the best ways is the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. And, of course, it's evident that Jesus died and rose again. And uh, there's people who have written books that said if all the evidence for that were presented in an unbiased court, the court would acknowledge that it's true. There's lots of evidence. So we are not asked when we are, when we, um, when we are, when Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe, we are not being asked to believe in the unbelievable. We are being asked to look at, look at what we have, look at the reality, and actually then put our trust in that. <clears throat> Faith is when I come to the Lord Jesus and I say, I believe everything you said about yourself and everything you said about me <laughs> and everything that you said about everything else. And I surrender every competing view and hold on only to you and to your teaching. If you say it's real, it's real. If you say this will happen, it will happen. If you say this is right, it is right. If you say that is wrong, it is wrong. I will live my life as a follower of everything you stand for and taught. I trust you in every area. And I, I trust you in every area I know. And I seek to understand you in areas that I don't know. So that is the definition. The definition of faith is trust, confidence, belief, a giving up to something, to someone. <clears throat> and that, if you take Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is the assurance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. I think that's right. But the idea is you actually have evidence and you actually have, have been convinced and you don't see it, but you don't have to see it because there's enough of evidence supplied that you give your life to it. That's actually what they, uh, what they did there in Hebrews 11. They seen it from afar. They didn't possess it, but they believed it and they embraced it and then they followed after. That is true faith. 
So I don't have a blind faith. I have truckloads of evidence and data. And I have chosen to reject false religion, their worldview, the secularist worldview, and the moralist worldview for Christ's worldview. So I have been convinced that Jesus is Lord. He is the second person of the Godhead. He died for my sins as he says he did. He rose again and he went back to heaven with his father. He is preparing a place for me. He's coming back for me again someday. And he's going to judge the whole world. And he's going to restore everything back in pristine condition. So now I may be facing persecution like they were here. I may be facing other trials. I may be facing false teachers and false doctrines. They might be pounding on our doors. There might be adversaries and disappointments and trials. And yet I am still convinced that he loves me and that I love him. Whom having not seen ye love, though whom now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You see, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what for trials you faced this week. But faith is the victory that overcomes whatever you are facing. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Though you don't see him, you are able to rejoice. Why are you able to rejoice in someone you can't see? Because what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to continue to do in your life. What's that word that says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? What if you have something coming in your life that looks like the Russian army coming towards you when you're in Ukraine? That seemed like a huge, huge (laughs) conflict coming your way. But if you believe the Lord Jesus Christ, you will believe this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you believe that, and so there you have a trial, but if you believe that, you can now rejoice in that trial. If we can't rejoice in our trial, maybe our faith is, yeah, maybe we have, well, maybe our object of our faith is off. Because we talked earlier, even a little bit of faith in the right object does the trick, although uh, a greater faith is better. But maybe, just maybe, if we have struggles and we can't rejoice in the Lord Jesus, maybe the object of our faith might be off. It's okay to consider that. That is actually why deception is so devastating. Deception is devastating because deception means You are believing something, you're putting confidence, you're putting trust in something that is not true. And that is absolutely devastation. If faith is the heart, 
Uh, so you're putting faith in the wrong medicine. That is devastating. If you need something to cure you and you're putting confidence in the wrong thing that won't do it, that is devastating. That's what deception is. <clears throat> we need to be in the word and we need to be with others and we need to be try the spirits whether they are of God or not. But the main point here is faith is trusting the Lord Jesus. And that trust is based on a mountains of evidence. And of course, then you have your own personal experience of what he has done. Not all our questions are answered. <laughs> we don't have all our answers. Uh, we don't have all the answers and we still have questions, but there is well plenty of answers for those. And for those who continue to say no to God, don't have an intellectual problem, they actually have a moral problem to say no to this God. Because the evidence is there. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And uh, that basically is saying the, the ultimate reward for trusting him will be the the reward for trusting him will be the ultimate salvation of your souls. In other words, he'll see it the whole way through, and eventually there's a salvation coming yet. Okay, that is the first part, the part about faith. Now we'll go to the prophets. Of which salvation, they're talking about uh, receiving the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. <clears throat> Now, this prophets, of course, is referring to the Old Testament prophets who wrote down what God told them to write down. And according to this, not everything they wrote down, they didn't understand it. I'm sure some of the things they wrote down, they understood it. But there were some things they wrote down that they did not understand. Now, there is a theory. There is a hermeneutics of Bible interpretation that is called the historical grammatical method. This method says that the correct way to interpret scripture, interpret the Bible, is to discover the meaning of the passage as the original author would have intended it and as the original hearers would have understood it. In other words, how do you, how do we understand the scripture? What, what is our method of interpreting it? Well, you try to understand what the writer, what he was intending to write, and you would understand in the, how the audience, the original audience would have understood it. And you try to seek that out, and when you understand that, you have the right interpretation of the scripture. 
The original passage then is seen as having mainly one single meaning or sense. There, there, there are many applications, but there's one dominant meaning of the original uh, interpretation. And to help us understand it, I'm going to use another method that has been popular, and I don't know how popular it is today, but it's called the allegorical method. And I'm going to give you an example of this. The parable that Jesus gave that we call the Good Samaritan. What was the purpose that Jesus, why did Jesus tell the parable? I want you to think a little bit. Why did he tell the parable? Whatever this man came to him that asked him, what I must I do to be saved? And he said, to keep the law. And he said, well, I've done all that. And then he said, no. No, no, that was the wrong about the rich young ruler. <laughs> he said, oh, what? Yeah, what's, what's, what's your, did Jesus say, well, what do you think? What does the law say? And he said, well, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus just said, yeah, go ahead and do that. And then he had some problems. He said, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gave him the parable to help him to understand, because he was wanting to justify himself, and Jesus actually wanted to expand his idea of, uh, of that, it, that being a neighbor goes beyond your own people, and it, it ruined his own justification of himself. That's what we understand the parable to be. Now, an allegorical method would be, this is one way of doing it, and this is actually by one of the early church fathers, but I've, I've heard it more recently. In the last five years, I heard someone use this example. In the allegorical view, the Good Samaritan means this. The man who is robbed is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise. Jericho is the world. The priest is the law. And the Levites are the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. The donkey is Christ's physical body, which bears the burden of the wounded man, and the wounds are his sins. And the inn is the church. The oil that's poured in is the Holy Spirit. And the Samaritan's promise to return is a promise of the second coming of Christ. And we say, well, that's beautiful. That's, ah, that's really, that's awesome. The, to all get that out of one parable is, is and, and someone can present that in a way that inspires our hearts. But it's a literary device. It's actually not true. It's actually not the purpose that Jesus gave. Jesus didn't give this parable. The, the, the man that was say, well, who is my neighbor, did not think of the Good Samaritan as Adam. It had nothing to do with the story. You can allegorize it and you can make a nice story out of it, but it's not a proper method of interpreting the scripture. <clears throat> but so proper method is to understand what Jesus meant and how the hearer heard it. But now we have a problem. If we are to understand the text as the writers meant it to be understood, what shall we do now here? Because here it says that the prophets were writing it and they didn't understand what they were writing. <laughs> so we're supposed to understand what the authors were writing when they themselves acknowledged they didn't understand it. 
So how do we interpret a passage to what the original authors meant when they themselves didn't know what it was? Does anybody know how to solve that dilemma? If we take a step back further, who is the author of the scripture? Is it these men? If you take a step back further and say it's God, well, what does it say here? It says the spirit of Christ, which is in them, gave them the word. So we clearly have the spirit. And in in Second Peter, we have in verse one twenty one, we have this for the prophecy. That talk about prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So here there we have the Holy Ghost here in uh, in uh, if you're in First Peter right now, I don't know if you went back there or not. Here we have about it's the Spirit of Christ. This is actually one example where you see the Trinity in action. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But we believe in the Trinity because here you have the Spirit of Christ spoke through the prophets. But there in, in Second Peter, we have the Holy Spirit spoke. So it, 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 the Trinity working together. And actually, um, later on in chapter 1, I'll probably speak in a, in, a, in a consequent message at some point. We come to the Word of God. I might speak more on inspiration there. But for right now, for this morning, we have abundant evidence that the Bible claims to be inspired. And the prophets that were writing it understood it that they were being inspired. Their writing came from God. They understood it that way. It was not like they wrote it down and then it became ancient writing and eventually became revered and eventually made holy down the road. Right at the time of the writing, they understood it to be scripture. So, back to the problem. The prophets wrote what they did not understand. <clears throat> and they wrote it very many different places. Like, I go to my, go to the Lincoln home, and I have an aunt there who likes to put puzzles together. And so often there is a puzzle on a table, a started puzzle, in various stages, different times, and I have already helped her put a few pieces together. And then I leave. And then they put the rest of the puzzle together and it's finished. I am not there to see it. These prophets, various prophets, were like putting pieces of a, jugs, uh, of a jigsaw puzzle together. And this one put a few pieces together and this one put some pieces together. But they never saw the finished object. They did not understand what the picture is going to be like, and I can see the picture. They just saw little bits of it, and they didn't understand it, even though they helped put it together. But though they didn't understand it, it doesn't mean they didn't care. In fact, they really did care. It says here, the prophets 
inquired diligently. They really wanted to know. What, were they, what did they want to know? Well, they didn't know how it was going to happen. They didn't know who they were describing. Uh, they didn't know when it was going to happen. The whole thing of what, where, when, and how, and why. Well, I don't know about the why even. I didn't think my way through that. But they, they knew something was going on, but they, didn't, they couldn't put it together. They didn't have the finished picture. Well, what did they prophesy? I, I, I know of someone who has 10 hour-long messages of Christ in the Old Testament, including the typology. Um, but we're not going to do that much, but we're going to look at a little bit at what, what they prophesied, just to give you an example. And it is very, very brief. But have you ever heard of a Micah 5.2 and Matthew 2.5? Just remember those two quotes. Micah 5.2, Matthew 2.5. Let's read them. Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, one of the prophets, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth hath been from of old, from everlasting. That was a prophet. He prophesied this. He didn't understand what that meant. Here in Matthew, and they said unto him, this is the wise men that came to, to the people in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That's Mike, uh, Matthew 5, 2, 5, and 6. We can go to Isaiah 53, and Isaiah has it throughout his scriptures. We have it there in Isaiah 9 where it talks about the counselor and the mighty God and the prince of peace. And you have that uh, everlasting kingdom. You have uh, Matthew, I mean, Isaiah 52 and 53, where it describes the crucifixion. But I want to go a little bit into Psalms 22, because I almost think this is the most amazing one. Psalms 22, and you may turn there. This psalm describes the crucifixion. Jesus actually quoted this psalm from the beginning. Uh, the first, the first verse of this psalm where he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's a reference to the rest of the psalm. Verses six and eight, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. Down to verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped at me, gaped at me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked hath enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and, and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, and they cast lots upon my vesture. Just some of the commentary here. The crucifixion. This, this crucifixion would be public, not private. It would be wicked and angry people. There would be a mob surrounding him during the time. He is highly de- dehydrated. Verse 14 talks about his bones being out of joint, which is common with crucifixion, even though they were not broken. They pierced his hands and his feet. And, of course, the enemies even quoted the psalm, they trusted the Lord. They divided his garments with lots. In Psalms 69, 21, he was fed vinegar. Psalms 41, 9, he was betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11, he was prophesied how much money he would be sold for and what the money would be used for, like it was thrown to the potter. It was used to, to buy the potter's field. Now, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Christ. It was written before crucifixion was probably even thought of. It, the word crucified was not used here because no one was being crucified at that point because it's invented by the Romans, I think, later on. So his death was predicted. His type of death was described before this type of death existed. And this is only a sample of the prophecies, a vast amount of prophecies that are given about the Christ. And it's only about his death. Amazing. So these prophets, so these prophets were prophesying and they were inquiring. And what were they told? What well, he said, unto, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel. <clears throat> Daniel is a good example of this, because Daniel saw those visions that totally, totally confused him. And uh, a few verses here in Daniel 12 And he said, and I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the end of, until the time of the end. So part of that time of the end had come now. They, those Old Testament prophets gave us blessed us with all those prophecies, all that evidence that we now have today and which then the the apostles used to, um, the apostles used then to preach the gospel, especially to the Jews, but even, even to Gentiles. Though the prophecies came from God and though they were accurate, and they were not clear. They knew something special was coming, 
They knew it was good. In fact, even the angels knew something special was coming, but even they didn't know. Amazing. See, what was going to happen before Christ came, what was prophesied piece by piece by piece by piece by piece was hidden from the entire spirit realm, whether it's the angels or whether it was the devil. And we can know why, because if the devil would have known it, it says if he would have known what would have happened if he, when he crucified the Lord of glory, he would never have done it. So the angels didn't know what was coming. So they came and they announced the birth of Christ, and they came and they rejoiced, but they did not understand how it was going to play out as well. What was going to happen was known only by the Trinitarian Godhead. But then what was unclear became clear. When Jesus was walking with his disciples on the Emmaus Road, and he opened to them the Old Testament scriptures, and he put the pieces together, and now they knew Christ was the Messiah. He had died. He had risen again. And then you go to the Old Testament prophets, and all of a sudden, the jigsaw comes together, and you see the picture. It becomes clear. And then the Holy Spirit at Pentecost came and another entire dimension opened up to the apostles when they actually began to see that this, the Lord went back to heaven and now the church is the kingdom of God on earth. And, and that became clear. And of course, at the apostles kept on getting revelations. We, we now have what we have today. <clears throat> We are in a privileged position today. In fact, Jesus told his audience in Matthew thirteen seventeen. he said, Many, many righteous men have desired to see and to hear what you hear and were not able. But now we hear it. We are in a privileged position. That means that a young child of God understands more of this picture than the sages did in the Old Testament. And it's not because we're smarter or more spiritual or better. It's just simply it's been fulfilled. Now we understand it. But there are two parts of this prophecy. What are the two parts? <laughs> they testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. They predicted suffering and they predicted glory. We only talked about the sufferings of Christ. Now, the prophets were confused about this. Because they, they saw the suffering and they saw the, uh, they saw a suffering going on and they saw someone, a king going on, someone reigning. This created so much confusion that some 
rabbis thought there were going to be two messiahs. <laughs> Why did they think that? Well, because they couldn't put the two together. But today, we see them fulfilled in one. But it's been separated by thousands of years. Now, you, you could say the resurrection was glorious, the glory that should follow. You could say the resurrection was glorious, and that is true. It, it actually is, but it's actually glory in, in, in germ form. It's only the down payment. It's only the first fruits. The true glories that shall follow is still coming. He's coming back sometime in the future to reign. One thing we know that they did not know in the Old Testament, they were predicting this, is we know who is coming. They didn't know who. We knew, we know who this person is. We, we know the Lord Jesus, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his eternal resurrection. We know he has won the victory. There is no question in our minds. But we don't know exactly how he's going to do it, and we certainly don't know when he's going to do it. So there is still an unfinished puzzle for us. So in some sense, in this sense, some of the Old Testament unclarity remains. You know, when I look at the book of Revelation, and I look at other places in the scripture where it talks about the future, I have my ideas of what is going to happen, but I am not real, real, real clear on some of those, some of those things. I feel like those Old Testament prophets did. I, there's things I do not understand. How can this be true and this be true at the same time? Where does Israel fit in with this? Where does the church fit in with this? And where does, and you can go on down the line. I, I, it's not clear to me. Now, some people have it figured out. I don't. But we know that someday it will actually be clear to us. Someday we'll understand those future events as well as we understand the crucifixion today. Okay, a little bit of overview of the implication of prophecy. What is the implication of what we have read this morning about the prophets? Well, one thing we know, number one, the Bible is a supernatural book. There is no way that these prophecies could have done all that that many, and, and we haven't even gone nearly exhausted that. The, prof, the Bible is a supernatural book. It reveals to us God. Number two, the implication of prophecy. It shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what we, what we see there. And three, that God has a plan. You know, if you look at the world today, and you maybe even look at your life today, I don't know, it looks like there is no plan. Just wicked people 
doing bad things to each other. But if you look in the scripture, you can very clearly see God has a plan, and that plan is continuing to move on. We are not in despair. Do not need to be in despair. Whatever situation we're in, because God has a plan, and you are in that plan. It feels though it feels like the world is out of control. It isn't actually out of control. Everything will eventually pan out. The fourth implication of this prophecy is: if the suffering prophecies are true, if the suffering, the the, the scriptures that talk about the suffering are true, and they were, they all came to fulfillment. Then the scriptures about the glory is also going to be true. In other words, we have that confidence. And that leads us actually to the last verse. If the, if the suffering passages are true, so are the glory passages. They will come true as well. And verse 13, the last verse here. Since that is true, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope, have confidence to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, that's an encouragement. And uh, Peter needed to give that to his people because they were a suffering people. They were a persecuted people. Girding up the loins of your mind, we'll probably get into that one maybe in the next message. But it basically means prepare your mind. And then to being sober means actually be sober-minded. And then have faith completely to the end because the grace is coming. We have lots of evidence. We can trust the Lord. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom is what Jesus told uh, his disciples there. And that is actually what Peter would be telling these people here, these suffering people. Wait for the master. Don't obsess about the things that people normally worry about. God will take care of you. Be obsessed about the coming kingdom. Put your treasures in heaven. Be like those servants who were ready to go when the master came back. They were ready. Prepare your mind and be truly focused on what is important. So may the Lord bless you as we think of faith and as we think of prophecies. As we think of our salvation, may may we uh, be faithful to the Lord. God bless you.